What is up, guys? Gentle reminder yet again, if you don't have your ticket to Bitcoin Amsterdam, go buy your damn ticket. And if you are not yet subscribed to the print mag, you're just doing this whole thing wrong. Pop on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store, use promo code BMLIVE, get 10% off of your annual subscription, your subscription or a copy of the most recent censorship-resistant print mag. And now I'm very excited to introduce our guest now, Jimmy Song. Jimmy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. And as usual, it's it's a lot of fun to come on this thing and, you know, say what I need to say. Of course, you know, like we've had a lot of different things happen. So yeah, I, I'm sure we'll be exploring a lot of different aspects of what's going on. So looking forward to talking about all that. What are you talking about, Jimmy? I've been under a rock for the last couple of weeks. Like, there's, there's no news. No news. You, you Not missed, whatsoever. You missed earlier when I was pushing for, like, what are the four horsemen of the pure market bottom? And I'm going to share with you what I think they are, and I'd love your thoughts and, and maybe what your other ones are. But first thing first, Celsius, you need to die. Literally, it needs to die. Next, I need Gary V to come out and finally admit to the world that his whole shtick of, yo, dude, just like quit your job, bro, and like, you can do whatever you want, man. It's all a fucking shtick because he's a fucking trust fund baby and can use daddy's funds to prop up his lifestyle. And then, by the way, he sold you all these bullshit NFTs that are literally useless, worthless, and a scam. Then we have ETH 2.0 actually getting rolled out will be a sign of a market bottom. And then the final one, of course, is Peter Schiff buying some Bitcoin. <laughs> I, I, I'm i going to say that that's probably not, I, 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 well, Celsius will probably die. Thank you. This, though. I, I, hey, it's I don't know. I don't they're know fucking horsemen. They're, they're just arbitrary. What are your, I mean, the question itself is, is what are your horsemen for the market bottom? Well, well, you usually have a rage quit, and I, I, I think we're pretty close. I think, I, I think Nick Carter has pretty much rage quit, although he's not denouncing Bitcoin or anything like that. But that's only a matter of time, right? Like, you know, we, we, we had Roger Ver in the last cycle, and we had you know Mike Hearn in the cycle before that, and so on. So, so usually, usually some sort of a rage quit. That's that's not a terrible indicator. But yeah, a lot of people get stressed around that stuff. A lot of VCs, I think, are are struggling a little bit because, you know, they're the they held their, you know, altcoins down, you know, 80, 90%. I'm I'm sure a lot of their LPs are asking, why didn't you sell? And you know, you 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 get stuff like that. But yeah, generally, like for me, you know, the way you tell a bear market bottom is when a lot of people have lost hope and only the real true believers are left. There's still, I think, a lot of hopium out there, especially among all pointers. So I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like that. You know, one thing that like, as I continue to just read and absorb from people way smarter than me, one thing that I see get pointed out a lot is, you know, previous market downturns in Bitcoin in particular have never had the backdrop of a global economic recession. And I just, I want to get your thoughts on, does that actually, is that going to play a significant impact in price first and then the network itself at large? <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, well, I don't know, right? We, we, we've never been through this before. I mean, Bitcoin was created after the last, giant recession crisis kind of thing. And we're coming upon another one. The, the thing though, is that I, I don't know if the Fed has the balls to like keep a tight monetary policy. I, I mean, I think a tight monetary policy in general is a good thing because that means whatever people save in the dollar actually like holds its value. But that, that is politically very, very difficult to do. You, you need to have balls of steel, right? Volcker, right? Balls of steel. Just like let the interest rates just keep rising and bankrupted uh, probably a ton of companies. I, I, I'm sure that's what would happen if rates went up, but there, there's a whole ton of commercial paper out there that's not going to be able to compete and bond prices will go down so that the yields are higher. You know, stock prices will come down because people are going to use it for other stuff like, you know, holding it in the dollar or whatever. So you, you get 
some very weird effects. But I, I, yeah. So all that is to say, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen. Like where, like this economic downturn is going to be allowed to continue as long as the Fed can do something. Once you get, you know, mass unemployment or anything like that, they they're going to have to act. And you know, are we there yet? Probably not. But you know, bond markets are pricing in you know, an interest rate cut, not a rise. So they know something we don't. And markets are generally very good about sort of like information leaks and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. It, it's, I, I'm not prepared to say that the economic downturn is like at hand or anything like that. It's mostly just sort of created by Fed policy, which is a common thing whenever you have a central controller of the currency. They, they can you know, manipulate things. And fun historical fact, this is what the second central bank of the United States did during the Jackson presidency. They purposefully tightened money so that the country would go into a recession. And yeah, Andrew Jackson basically called them out on it and he got reelected. And they, they did that so that, you know, somebody more favorable to the bank would, uh, would be elected. But Jackson hated them and basically defunded them. And and they went away. Probably one of the bravest things that any president has done, to be honest. But yeah, they, this, you know, I, I, I don't know if the Fed has the balls to do it, basically. Sorry, was muted. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this disconnect with what is necessary to happen to fix the issues with our money and our system versus what the people who have the power to make those decisions have the appetite to do. Time will tell if, I, if any of us here had that crystal ball to perfectly map out what is going to happen, we wouldn't be here. We'd have our own island and I would have bet very big money on, I don't know, the Rams winning the Super Bowl and probably have played the GameStop debacle way better than I did. Jimmy, what's been, you know, grinding your gears over the last week since we last got to talk? There's been a lot going on in the world and a lot of things to piss you off, I'm sure. Well, I, more, more than piss me off, it's just kind of, I, I'm saddened by what's happened to the choir. I mean, he, it's, you know, I mean, we, we both know that he, he's contributed some pretty good articles to Bitcoin, but seeing him just sort of fly off the handle like he has in the last week and a half has been, has been sad more than anything else it's it's just you know you you're watching you know you know that scene from what's that movie um oh gosh where where the guy keeps calling this woman that he just met i can't remember what what movie that is but he calls her leaves a voice message hangs up and then he calls her again and like leaves another long message and he calls her again like american psycho he, it wasn't american psycho it was oh gosh it, but, but he, he's like, you know, trying to get over this previous relationship and, you know, he gets a girl's number and he leaves like four super long messages. And then he's like about, he calls a fifth time and she just like, don't ever call me again. Right. Like you're, you're, you're crazy. But the whole time when you're watching that scene, it's just, you, you get, it, it feels cringier and cringier and cringier, right? Like, and you, you, like the entire audience is just like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And yeah, he explains himself more and more. That's what this feels like. It just gets, just when you think it can't get cringier, it gets even cringier. And, you know, I mean, he's, he's going on an Ethereum podcast and I mean, my star is continue. I mean, stuff like that. It's just, it's painful for me to watch because. I like Dick. He's a, he, he's a good guy, but I mean, it's just kind of flown off the handle and it's, it's a very sort of sad situation and, and I wish it didn't have to come to this, but you know, I, I've said this multiple times in different eras, right? Like last bull market, you know, I mean, said goodbye to a lot of B cashers, right? Some of them were, you know, good Bitcoiners at, at some point, the the cycle before that, there were, there were a ton of people, you know, I mean, Bitcoin was really the only coin at that point, but then they left for Ethereum or whatever. And it was just like, well, I, I mean, the, these things just sort of happen. People leave, people come back and you just sort of have to deal with it, but it's, it's nevertheless still a bit sad. 
Yeah, the the interview he did where he somebody asked him like, "Hey, is this the end of Bitcoin maximalism?" And he's like, "I'm not gonna say that I killed it, but <laughs> this has got to be a major blow." I was like, "Oh God, Nick, why, why? <laughs> you were supposed to be the chosen one, you know?" Yeah, it's it's one of those like huge facepalm moments, right? It's it's just you could see him almost like almost determined to destroy himself. Like, I, like, is there anything that the internet punishes more harshly than anything that sounds that arrogant, right? Like, he could be perfectly right, but you will get punished for that level of sort of like perceived ego or pride. And, and he's getting punished. And it's just like, I, I don't know who's advising him or... If he has anyone in his life, just telling him like, dude, like, just calm down. Stop, stop doing what you're doing because you are hurting yourself way more by doing this additional action. And, and that's, that, that's the real sad part to me. Like, does he have no one in his life that can actually speak truth to him and say, dude, you're, you're, you're looking like a complete prick here. Like, and I know he's not a prick like that, but. Like, that's what he comes off as when he says stuff like that, which to me is, is the real sad part because he's not a bad guy. He, he's just, I don't know, triggered on tilt, whatever you want to say. It's just, it's just very cringy to watch. And I'm, I'm kind of sad about it. I don't know. P you're muted. <laughs> One day I'll get it right. Today is not. <laughs> One thing that I think is interesting here is that this is the type of behavior you normally see in the bull market. Like normally it's like, you know, the, the temptation gets too great and somebody who's like the, you know, like presents themselves as a stalwart, stalwart, whatever, a, a Bitcoin maximalist kind of starts shifting over and publicly, you know, embracing shitcoins. I'm surprised that this is during the bear market, but... Uh, Anyway. Yeah, I, honestly, it happens whenever, and I, I'm sure he's under a lot of stress, you know, like uh, every VC is given just sort of like how the market has been and like all these valuations are like tumbling and, um, you know, a lot of these companies aren't doing that great. So I, 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 I get it. It's stressful. I, and you know, there, there's a lot of things that you sort of have to manage as a VC, mo mostly from LPs yelling at you saying, you know, what the hell? Like, you know, the, what, why, what are you doing with my money? I'm losing it or whatever. So I, I get it. But, you know, like during bull markets, if you do sort of like do a heel turn, like say Udi did, you know, there, there's like a very clear financial incentive involved. You know, he, he wasn't getting paid in the Bitcoin space. He was getting paid in, you know, all coins because they were like, Hey, can you review this? And we'll give you these tokens and all this other stuff. So he, he naturally went that way because that's where he was getting paid. I don't think that was necessarily the case with Nick. It, it seems that for, for him, it was, you know, he couldn't stand being made fun of or something. And he, he doesn't know how to take an L, which. Honestly, you got, you got to kind of learn that. I, I would hope if you're a functioning adult, like you're not going to win everything. That's just unrealistic. You learn to take the L, you know, fig figure out how to move on from it. And like the whole thing would have been, would have stopped after like one day, if he just said, you know, I like, I I'm sorry that, that, you know, this investment that I made, uh, you know, is upsetting some people, but you know, like here, here's what I'm doing, why I think it's, you know, still compatible with my beliefs or whatever. And, you know, like, I, I don't know if anyone would have really like dug into him quite as much as, you know, as he's be been dug into in the past week, if, if he just sort of like apologized and, and finished it, or e even like five days ago, if he apologized and said something, I think that would have been the end of it. But instead. He's just sort of egged it on. He's like, oh, you know, like you, you think I'm, you think I'm doing something immoral, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to come after you and make fun of you and, you know, do all this other stuff, which is, I mean, like, honestly, like he needs somebody in his life. That's, that's there to tell him, Hey, like you're doing something really dumb. Do you really want to go down this road? And he, I, I, 
he clearly doesn't have one or he's not listening to the people that are telling him that. I, I don't know what it is, but it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a good lesson for anyone in this space. Like, especially if you're a public figure, you know, like take the L and move on, right? Like you, you're only going to make it worse by trying to make it out to be that you're the one that's brilliant and right all the time. Like the internet does not forgive that in any way, shape or form. And you're, you're going, you're going to get destroyed. And yeah, that's kind and Nick has probably the exact wrong personality to handle that. As far as I can tell, it's fairly sensitive and yeah, I like in many ways, that's a good thing because it allows him to sort of like ferret out the right arguments as he's writing his articles and things like that. And he's, he's clearly very smart, but, oh man, like you need character to go with that. And honestly, like the, the actions that he's taken, it's, it's, it's just really painful to watch because. It, it, he just seems so unaware of how he comes off or what he's doing. Is there, is there a path to redemption for not just Nick, but you know, any of these people who were once an integral part of Bitcoin and its community to return to the community? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there, there have been many people that have like sort of gone out and come back. It's, uh, the, the key thing though, is you need to apologize and it needs to be sincere. You can't just be like, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think when says he, he signed the two X agreement, he, you know, promoted coin two X and everything else. A couple of years later, he said, you know, I was wrong. And I, I apologize to the community for doing that. It was fine. Like that, no, nobody was like, oh, you know what? You're still a spook and we're going to hate you, blah, blah, blah. It, it wasn't like that at all. It was, okay, welcome back. The, the thing that keeps most of these people away that have left, I think it isn't necessarily that, you know, you know, the, the tech is so much better in something, something else or whatever. It's, it's almost always pride. It's, it's an unwillingness to admit that you were wrong at some point. And, you know, I think this is still what keeps people like Gavin and Driesen and Mike Hearn and Jeff Garzik away. They, they have sort of like this conception of themselves and they, they don't want to take the L and, you know, I, Nick, Nick seems to be going down the same road. I, I think Udi certainly the same way, but you know, you, you come back and say, you know, I was wrong. I, 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 you know, like. This is the right way, you know, to think about Bitcoin. And yeah, I, I, I don't think there's, there are going to be people on Twitter saying, oh, you're still sucky. I mean, maybe, maybe a few people or whatever, but they're not going to be the ones that matter. I mean, if you're, if you're showing genuine contrition at what you did, I, I really don't think there are any people that would be like, screw you, go away. I like that's. That's just not how this community is. That's sort of like caricatured that way by all coiners. But that's, I mean, just look at how people are. I, I really don't think that's the case. So one thing I wanted to get your, your thoughts on is the, the recent news from Mt. Gox. They announced that they are starting to release, I think it's 150 thousand Bitcoin that were, that have been locked up since they blew up. What, what are your thoughts on the, the, <laughs> the significance of that, what that means for the, the space, if anything at all? Yeah. Amazing. Eight years later, huh? I should tell you a little bit about like how slow the legal system moves and you know, like the people that had money in those, in that exchange, like they, you know, they're finally getting, I guess, somewhat made whole. Obviously keeping that Bitcoin on your own wallet would have done way, way better, but eight years of wilderness now, now you finally get access to it. Great. I, I, I think what people are going to say is, oh, there's going to be a huge dump of coins or whatever. There might be, who knows, but you know, if you owned it back in 2013, it's a pretty good chance that you, you are happy about Bitcoin or see some value in Bitcoin and might want to keep it. It's not, 
the most of the big whales that were on there are were trying to acquire a cheat. And from what I understand, the the high time preference people, they sold their claims to, you know, third parties. So I know Fortress was going up and buying tons and tons of these claims. They're probably gonna get a, a huge amount of Bitcoin out of it. But this was part of their strategy because they knew that acquiring Bitcoin in size was not going to be easy. So I think mo most of the people that will be getting getting it, especially the large holders, they wanted this Bitcoin. They're not looking to try to sell out of their position. It's a way for them to accumulate a lot of Bitcoin without, you know, sort of slippage or anything like that. So I think that's what's going to happen. I, I don't see a big crash or anything like that happening. You know, like eight years is a long time. A lot, a lot of people just forgot about the claims or sold them or whatever. So. That, that seems to me where things are going where. Hugh, you were going to ask something before I so rudely cut you off. Yeah, you totally killed by, killed by rabbit hole. I want to talk about politics and Bitcoin because, you know, we're leading up to an election and I want to start first abroad, Central African Republic. You know, this became the number two country to ever adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And now they're coming out with their own spinoff of like a CAR token or whatever the actual details are. I refuse to actually acknowledge or, or give it even a, an extra additional view. You know, this is no different than, in my opinion, when the mayor of Miami was, oh, I'm more a Bitcoin city. And then within weeks of the Bitcoin conference in 2021, they released Miami coin. Or no different than Eric Adams saying, I'll take my first paycheck in Bitcoin a week later. Actually, I'm going to take it in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Fast forward six months and New York State is passing through or trying to pass through legislation to curb and restrict Bitcoin mining. I want to talk about just politicians in general and what their role within Bitcoin is going to be in the short and medium term. In the long term, I think all politicians die, but... Yeah, well, I mean, for some I mean, they're they're high time preference people. What can I say? They they look towards uh, what can I get now? How is it going to help me in my next election? And how am I going to get sort of money out of it? That that's kind of the type of people politics attracts. So when you know the mayor of Miami gets pitched on, oh, Miami coin, it'll you know give your city lots of money. And they're like, okay, we'll take it, right? Like that's that that's how they think. They're not trained to think very long term, and it's an unfortunate result of sort of the system that we have, where you're in office for four years, and you know you better make the most of it. It's you know that that's kind of how it is, right? Like where where you take advantage of your office. The Central African Republic, you know, you you had some smooth talkers come in and say, you know, we we can make you lots of money if you do this and it'll be really good for your country, blah, blah, blah. And they're not thinking about the long term. And I got to tell you, like even in El Salvador, you had a lot of altcoiners try to come in and try to get influence, you know, with, with the right authority so that they could get their altcoin sort of like carved out. And they failed largely because there's a lot of Bitcoiners there that know what the heck they're talking about. The, the people in power there are a, a lot more low time preference, I think. And they realize like, this is, you know, we can't screw this up. We can't just like mess around with altcoins or try something like that and, and, you know, come out behind and get egg on our face. They, they're, they're all in on Bitcoin because that's, that's what they, they know this, what's putting them on the map. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of politicians are just very high time preference. And if you're high time preference, all coins are exactly where you're going to like naturally lead yourself because you're not thinking about five, 10 years down the line. Most all coins, five, 10 years down the line, you're, you're down 9,900%. Like you're, you're not going to do very well. But if you're thinking in terms of Bitcoin, it's going to do way better. So th this is where. You know, the high time preference behavior of politicians is sort of like meeting, you know, currency with money. And unfortunately, most of them don't have that low time preference. Although, you know, once you do get into Bitcoin, you do start thinking about this stuff on like longer time scales. You know, how, how is this country going to be good? Like 
20 years from now instead of, hey, can I make a quick buck right here? And that that's that's the big difference. And unfortunately, most of these politicians are have no idea how to evaluate anything they they trust, they don't verify. And that's how it works in politics because most of the people that are in power have no expertise on on these topics and they just have to trust other people and it's very easy to fool other other politicians because they have they they don't have the skills to verify anything either and that that's actually what i wrote about in this past week it's it's about fiat knowledge they operate from that paradigm of course you're going to get manipulated by the designated experts or the people in power that like sort of control a particular field of knowledge and that's that that's unfortunately how they operate and it's something that I think Bitcoin changes to be much better. Sorry, Jerry, the correct answer was term limits. That was the answer. Yeah. But you're not wrong. I'm, I wonder what effect in, in your opinion, and none of us here are political experts, none of us are historians. We're just three dudes who really like Bitcoin. And these two over here know a hell of a lot more about that than I do. But what... Like, I hear a lot of conversations around the limitations of both the fact that parties domestically in the U.S. have a limited window to accomplish things and you try to not piss off too many people to retain your power while at the same time, these politicians have retained power for generations. So you have no incentive to actually get work done. It's almost as though the whole incentive structure within politics is don't piss off too many people so you can retain your high paying cushy job to continue to just do as little as possible to piss off as few people as possible. I don't know if that's a fair, accurate assessment or if the introduction of something like term limits for Congress in particular would change people's time horizons, would change their incentive structures. Just genuinely curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. I, the, the real problem here is that we have this concept of public property. And this is something that I've, I've spoken about with, with Robert Breedlove on his podcast, but basically it's this, the idea of public property is sort of a weird oxymoron. Cause if you look at the Latin propria is one's own, how can something be public and one's own, right? Like you can't own prop, it's not owned by anybody. And it's, it's sort of like a shared ownership or something weird like that. And you get very bad incentives when you combine public property with sort of a, like elect, uh, elected officials who want to sort of like extract value from public property because they are in charge of it. They, they sort of get to rent it for a few years and they get to extract whatever value they can for themselves or their relatives or their friends or something. And this is really the criticism that Hoppe has in his book, Democracy, the God That Failed. And I, I, I think the analysis is sound because this is the sort of same behavior that we see all the time with, with people in democracies is that the people that come into power have a very high time preference, like immediate sort of gratification kind of thing. And it's, it's a structural problem because of the presence of public property. If you don't have public property, uh, the alternative is that everyone own every, every sort of like property is owned by somebody, right? So instead of having public parks or something like that, you have somebody that owns that park and they do what they want to do with it. If it's charged for admission or whatever, that's totally fine. If they want to take some tax dollars to rent it out or whatever, and the, those those work fine. What doesn't work fine, and uh, is is you have public property, and they are put it. The people in charge of it don't own it, and you know, and they basically try to extract resources from it. So you have stuff like you know, I, I'm sure wherever you live, there is probably a highway construction project that's taken way longer than you thought, right? Like you know. Usually an inter interstate highway near you has been under construction for like the last seven years or something. And they, those things never get finished. Why? Because the incentives are off. They're, they're all looking at sort of like 
short-term incentives and our very high time preference instead of how do we build this thing so that it lasts for, you know, 20, 30 years? Because the officials in charge, you know, they're not looking at it that way because it's not really theirs. It's, 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 it quote unquote belongs to the public. And that, that's the real structural thing. And, you know, the thing that Hapa argues in Democracy, the God that failed is that if you have something like a monarchy, now the, this isn't to say the monarchy's ideal or whatever, the king owns this property. It's not public property. It's the king's property, right? And you can see vestiges of it in, you know, places like Canada where you have like Queens Parkway or whatever. It's owned by the king. And if that's the case, the king takes care of it. And because it's owned, well, you want to do a good job with it and you want to make sure that, you know, long-term it lasts and everything else. Soon as somebody owns something, they they have a an incentive to improve it and make it better, and that that's the real uh, sort of like disconnect here is that oftentimes you you get you know property that isn't owned by anybody, and as a result, you know it go it falls into disrepair. You know, you know for a while here in Austin, you had like homeless people, you know, like sleeping in parks and tents, right? Like in you know, I like however you feel, right? Whether you're left or right or whatever, that is the exact wrong, like sort of match between what these people need and what the you know land is for. The land is for recreation. If it's not for sheltering homeless people, if you want to shelter homeless people, build a homeless shelter, right? It's not it, it what the actual public property and its use are out of alignment because it's quote unquote public property and you get, you get weird behavior like that. And, you know, like if, if it was, if a homeless person tried to sleep in the backyard of your house, you would call the police, right. And, and kick them out. But because it's quote unquote public land, they, they, they are able to sort of like get by on a loophole. Same, same thing with like, you know, homeless encampments on all kinds of public property. Uh, oftentimes they're like state parks or national parks or under a inter, interstate highway or something like that. Like if you want to shelter the homeless, go build a homeless shelter. But a highway is not where a, like not a shelter for homeless people, right? Like it's, it makes everything just completely off. And that, that's a problem with this weird oxymoron called public property, which should not exist. I think all property is way better the minute you, when it's owned by somebody, when they have an incentive to go and improve it. And it's a, it's a sad reality, unfortunately, and this is why public things tend to, you know, be of inferior quality to private things. At a certain point, though, like you bring up an example of the homeless person showing up to my backyard and I call the, the police force, which in turn is a branch of the government. Mm -hmm. Where, where does that line where is that line that we need some sort of protection of our property and do we need to be more self-reliant or is there a necessity to have some sort of outside force as that form of protection for property in your opinion? Yeah, of course. And I, I, I mean, unless you happen to be really good at it, but you know, private security forces are a thing, right? Like if you, if you are a business in a big building, you, you hire security guards and stuff like that. Um, not necessarily the police, but the, the thing that I would object to is sort of like a monopoly on something like that. If, if you have, if you're able to hire your own, you know, security forces for your property, that's generally going to be better. And we, we saw this year and a half ago, right? Like with, with all the riots and everything else in, in, in these places, uh, you know, the police weren't doing anything. They just refused to show up basically. But you know, if you had a private security force that was defending your property, yeah, that, that, that worked much better. And the whole, you know, thing with Rittenhouse and everything like that, it was, it was about somebody trying to defend his own property. Right. And you know, that, that sort of protection of your own stuff is 
something that you would do if you own the property. But, you know, if you're depending on government generosity to do it, I, I think it was clearly shown that that's not always reliable and it's, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're at risk of losing everything that you have. So more guns. I, I'm, I'm just saying pe let people own their own stuff and protect their own stuff, right? Like this is what we preach at Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. Don't trust other people with it. You know, hold your own stuff Yeah, outsource whatever it is that you need. I, ideally in a self-sovereign world, you can defend yourself, uh, but you know, that's not always possible. And you know, you can, you can contract out some of that and you pay them and you, you have a contract instead of this weird thing where you have a public good that sort of like treats everyone is supposed to treat everyone equally. We know that doesn't happen because, you know, policeman is going to be a lot more responsive to you in a nice suburb than, you know, in the ghetto or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's stuff like that, that I think, you know, public property sort of like makes really bad. And, you know, I, I wrote an essay about this a while ago about, you know, why I'm, I'm, you know, a little bit wary about covenants because it does sort of muddy the waters of the borders of property. And that's when you get in trouble, when you have something like public property, that's, that's, you know, like who, who's in charge, what, who's allowed to do what, and it adds all this additional governance or confusion around who owns what which I, I don't think is very good. All right. I want to play a game with this because I, two of my favorite places to be are one is deemed public property and one is deemed private property. The public property for me is the beach. Yes, there are private beaches. I don't think a single one of you plebs owns or, or is at a private beach. If you are, you're not a pleb. And then the private property for me is a ski resort somewhere for me to go snowboarding, but in a controlled and contained environment, not the backcountry stuff that I do venture off and go to, which tends to actually be on public property. What does a, in your mind where we have removed the idea of public property and the government necessitating property ownership, what does the beach look like? Cause let me tell you, Jimmy, if you're taking the beaches away from me, let's, we need to reevaluate some things here. No, I, and there are sort of like beaches where you have to pay a fee to get in and stuff, right? Like the, the thing about beaches that's very frustrating is that almost always it's like nothing is where you want it to be when you need it, right? Like they're almost always like too few showers for you to like wash off sand. And it's always like far away from the parking lot where you need to, where you parked and going to get all the sand in your car and stuff like that. Think about who designed that. It's, it's, it's some stupid government official that didn't think about the beachgoer experience. But if somebody actually owned the beach, well, they would be more motivated to make the beach experience way better, right? Like maybe have more bathrooms, right? You know, have, you know, more lifeguards maybe for safety. You can have, you know, better food, maybe even like food trucks like nearby and everything else, you know rentals that aren't monopolized, you know, the, the, the experience would be better with, with a private owner rather than a public beach. Cause you know, it, it's frustrating cause you, you never have everything that you want at, at the place that you want it. Instead it's okay. It's a public beach. So, you know, there are no stores around, you know, maybe, maybe you get somebody with some sandals, like coming by and trying to sell you some or whatever. Like it, it would be way better if somebody actually owned it because they would be more motivated to, you know, serve you, the customer, the, the person that's going to, and you know, like we tend to think of access to the beach as like a free public good. It's not free. <laughs> You're paying for it and taxes and all, inflation and all this other stuff, all those government officials you know, they, they're, they're all getting paid. And if you're not a beach coder, you're, you're still paying for it because it's, it, it's taken out of your taxes. So in a way it's, it, it's, uh, it's socialized. The cost is completely socialized and it makes for a worse experience rather than a better.
And if you have private owners, it becomes better. It, it like they're, they're more motivated to do better things with it and make it a better experience. So I think beaches will be much better. And, and, you know, think about like how difficult it is to set up, you know, ski lifts and maintaining snow and snow machines and all that stuff. And, you know, the, the people that go to ski resorts, you know, they, they really enjoy their time. Like when, when's the last time you went to a ski resort and said, you know, I would really like to eat something right now, but you know, there's, there's just nothing here that, you know, there, there's no restaurant. I got a laundry list of ski resorts that need upgrades, man. Let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, but they're probably cheaper, right? (laughs) The really good ski resorts, I bet you have all of this stuff. And this is where the price dichotomy comes in and where you as a customer can go to a super fancy beach where you know, they have masseuses at the beach so you can get a massage at the, you know, while, while you're sun tanning or something or, you know, versus like a cheaper beach where, you know, maybe they don't have stuff like that, right? Like you, you have varying levels of service and people pay the price that they want to pay. And th- this is how the market sort of like shows, uh, you know, chooses various things. And you, you generally get better and better services and goods as a result. And, you know, like ski resorts, like from 50 years ago, probably very, very different than now, right? Like, cause they, they have better machines that'll take you up there faster, you know, you know, more interesting stuff. Even, even snowboarding didn't exist 50 years ago, but you know, they, they let you on or, you know, they, they have new types of fun that you can have on at, at these, you know, a beach, you know, a public beach 50 years later, I like. Probably a lot of them don't even allow some of the water sports that are really fun and interesting that weren't available 50 years ago because it's some public bureaucrat that says you're not allowed to do it, right? Like private beaches, you know, like you you could have way more innovation and more interestingness and and things like that. And that that that's a good thing. This is this is how everything improves. Instead, you have sort of like the stagnation of you know, sort of like beach stuff that honestly hasn't changed that much on public beaches probably for the last 50 years. I agree to a certain point with you. I think in all honesty, there is an underlying issue with everything in the world, and that is complacency. And complacency is the death of everything. While, yes, the ski experience has gotten better over 50 years, I'd actually argue and say the ski experience from 10 years ago was far superior than what you have today. And a lot of that is rooted around complacency. You had a lot of these businesses buying up smaller mom and pop shop type mountains. And it turned out you have conglomerates running an industry, jacking up prices. And now you've left out an entire sort of class of people and below who just are priced out of this experience. So my concern is that by privatizing the beach going experience while maybe the first iteration, the first decade iteration is great. At a certain point to maximize profits, you do raise prices. And my fear or concern is that all of a sudden you've now priced people out of just the simple experience of going outside. And that to me seems like a very slippery slope. My question is, how do we go from this present moment where something such as the beach is deemed public? land and how does that transition over to private private ownership yeah and the, what what you're pointing to is actually a result of fiat money you can do leverage buyouts of you know other ski resorts because you have this huge bucket of money available through commercial banks where you can you know they'll print money on your behalf so that you can go buy it right and you you get a monopoly you're able to raise prices because you're able to buy everything. If, you, if you're under a hard money, a sound money, then you have to go and get that from the actual market. The interest rates are going to be way higher. Or if you had to save, then you're going to have to save and make way more profit than your competitors in order to you know, buy them out. And that, that's typically way more difficult. So monopolies are naturally resisted by any sort of you know, reasonable market under sound money. It's all this easy money that causes this sort of like consolidation and, you know, 
jacking up prices, as you say, that, that that's been going on. It, it's because they were able to do leverage buyouts and things like that, which, and they jack up the prices so they can pay back the loans and then they make profit on that. So it, it's, it's all a part of this fiat game that that's being played with, with something like a beach, you know, you, you serve all segments of the market and, you know, maybe you have lots of luxury resorts at the beginning. If that's what people want to go to and that's what people will pay for, great. But, you know, you saturate that market fairly quick. There are people, you, you compete by making things cheaper and, and so on. At some point, I think people will be able to go to the beach for fairly cheap. And maybe, maybe it's like kind of like a free-to-play app on, on your iPhone or something like that. Where you, you can go to the beach for free, but, you know, if you want all of these upgrades, like say, you know, use of, use of a convenient shower or something like that, then, you know, maybe it costs you 50 cents or something. And they're maybe upsell you on a whole bunch of other stuff like food or lodging or, you know, surfboard rental or, you know, a boat rental, whatever. There, there's all sorts of ways in which I think people will find different business models that'll work if you privatize a beach. And, you know, I, and that's, that's the beauty of a free market is that people figure out things, figure out ways to give people, give people what they want. And they, they make a profit doing that. And, and I, I certainly think that if you privatize beaches, that's exactly what would happen. I'll admit that since 2017, so about five years now, I've actually paid every time I've gone to the beach here in Los Angeles. I don't pay a single fiat penny though. I pay by cleaning up and picking up a piece of trash every single time I go to the beach. That is my payment. I love what you're saying about the idea of find the other aspects of the beach going experience and monetize those to increase those. I do have a concern with the idea of the government just sort of creating a bid to buy up beach property and beach land because there's no telling what can or will be done with that. I do think rather by, you may not agree with this. I like the idea of zoning the coastal land as purely public. Anything can be developed upon it, privatize those developments. And the payment is in fact, pick up fucking trash so that the city itself, the country, the state doesn't need to actually pay or subsidize that cost. You yourself as the beachgoer who experiences and enjoys experiencing the place that you're going to visit should take care of the things that you frequent. That's my mini rant. Jimmy, I gave you the final word before we wrap today. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. And every time something like that has been tried where you try to socialize the cost of, of cleanup or whatever, it, it never works. You know, there, there was a, I, I think one of the earliest colonies in America from European settlers was in, in Virginia and they had like a huge fat. And the reason was nobody owned the land. It was, everybody was supposed to work and do it. And of course, one person got lazy and said, I don't have to work. Everyone else will take care of me. It led to everybody not working and, and they starved, right? Like, cause. Nobody really had motivation to work. The incentives were all off. And with public property, the, the incentives are all off. Unless you pay somebody to go pick up the trash, they're not going to do it. I, I, it. It would probably cost more to try to enforce a restriction like that saying, okay, if you don't pick up trash, when you come here, we're going to kick you off the beach. Just pay somebody to go pick up the trash. And that's, that's what, you know, what happens with public property is that it tends to like degrade very quickly, you know, like you have littering on highways and stuff like that. And they have to pay lots of other people or, you know, rope in inmates to go clean it up public. Like if it's privately owned, you're going to keep your stuff really clean because you want other people to come in and, you know, use your business. So. Uh, you know, I, what, uh, you know, you go to a movie theater and there's trash all over the place. You're not going to want to go to that movie theater, but you know, if it's a clean place, then maybe you go back and that that's, I think how beaches would be if it were private, it would be pristine, probably really clean. They'll figure out new ways to keep it clean and stuff like that. Maybe there's even like, you know, like a Roomba for a beach or something like that, that somebody develops uh, that 
that, you know, works every few hours or whatever. Like there, there's all sorts of like things that we don't really even explore because there's no financial motive to do it. And that, that's the thing is you, if you try to make public property work, it never works because it's owned by everybody. So it's really owned by nobody. And what do you treat? How do you treat something that you don't own versus something you own? Unless there are huge penalties for it, you don't, you don't treat it very well because it's not yours. You know, the way people treat rental cars versus their own cars is, is very different. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's exactly the thing. You, you have to be very like the. The people that own it are going to take the best care of it. And if you have a public beach, they're not going to take very good care of it. Private beach, it's, it's going to do way better. Well, we'll end it with that. Jimmy, remind everyone if they're not following you on Twitter at Jimmy song, where else can they stay up to date with everything you're cooking up? Well, other than at Jimmy Song, you've got programmingblockchain.com. You can go and, you know, look at all the stuff that I'm doing there. Yeah, my newsletter is jimmysong.substack.com. Thank you, Jimmy, for joining us. If you're not already following Jimmy and his thoughts, be sure you are. Let's do a hard wrap. I want to remind everyone, if you have not already locked in your tickets to Bitcoin Amsterdam, buy those tickets now so P and I can keep our jobs. It's as simple as that, guys. All your questions will be answered in about one hour on Twitter. So feel free to pop on over where George and CK will be doing a Q&A session answering every and all questions you may have about Bitcoin Amsterdam. Buy the print mag, use promo code BM Live for that or anything in the Bitcoin Magazine store as well. Have a little bit of a healthy competition here and may or may not have put a lot more money than I should have down on that. So buy something using the promo code BM Live on the Bitcoin Magazine store. That's a wrap. P, final word. That's it. Let's do it. Peace.